Well, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Marcus Donaldson. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know. If you haven't heard already, I want to welcome you to City Church. This is a place where everyone is welcome because no one is perfect. We believe that here. Um, really, since the beginning of the year, we, we were in a series where we preached through our values. And I hope that if you've been joining us for the last several weeks, you heard that all of our, our values here at City Church are rooted and grounded in the Word of God. All right, and, and our first value actually was we teach the Bible. All right, we believe in God's word. We believe that we don't have anything to add to or take away from God's word. So we teach it. We teach it because we need it for salvation. We need it for living and honoring God in our lives today. So um, we're, we came to the end of that series last week, right? Adam Kaziah, I don't see him today. Maybe he's sick or in babies or something else. Mississippi with all the S's and all the I's. So um, he finished last week with We Serve Humbly. That was our last value. Five total. You can go on the podcast or the Facebook, watch uh, those if you weren't here with us. But we're going into a new series today that we're calling The Greatest Sermon of All Time. And really what we're going to be covering over the next several months is Matthew 5 through 7, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll talk about that title here in a second. But what I, what I realized very quickly in my preparation this week is that if we don't understand what's going on here, what Jesus is preaching here in Matthew 5 through 7, what we'll gain is a bunch of head knowledge. What we'll gain is a bunch of do's and don'ts and we, we will fail to see how the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of all time, how it fits into not only Matthew's gospel, but the meta-narrative of Scripture, the, the overarching story of Scripture. So what I want to do today, I was hoping that we would make it a lot further into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to make it into or through the first two verses with the Lord's help. So we're going to go ahead and get started. We need to understand this. We need to understand this. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew 5. And like I said, we'll be reading verses 1 and 2. But before we read it, we're going to have to go all the way back to Genesis. You don't need to flip there. Don't need to flip there. I'll walk you through it. But we see that in Genesis, God created everything, right? God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything in it. And he created man, Adam, right? Adam. He was not only the first man, but he was the first king. Now, I know what you're thinking. He didn't have a, a crown or a robe. He didn't have a throne. He didn't have a red carpet that he walked around the garden in or on so that he didn't get his feet dirty. But nonetheless, he was the first king. He was given dominion by God to subdue the earth, to rule it, and to keep it, all right? Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That sounds like a king, right? Doesn't need a crown. Doesn't need a robe. Doesn't need a throne. He's been given authority by God to rule and subdue, have dominion over the entire earth. But this king, the first king, fell. Right? He fell. He disobeyed God soon after he began to rule in Genesis 3. He Don't eat of, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Him and, Adam, or him and Eve did that, disobeying 
God. And this fall, it brought about a curse, which Paul talks about in Romans 5. We'll just read 12 through 14, but really he talks about it in Romans 5, 12 through 20. I'm going to give you a bite-sized piece of that. But Paul writes this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So the Old Testament begins with this curse, right? Adam and Eve, they were banished from the garden. The fall, it caused them to be kicked out of this this place, Eden, where they had unmediated access to God, where they walked with God in the cool of the day, heard him talk to them, talked with him, like No longer will they have that. Now their sacrifices, now this spiritual death where we are separated from God is a reality for all of us. Now there's murder, evil, death, everything. We see it all over the place. We wouldn't even recognize a world without the curse of sin. Can somebody say amen? Amen. So the Old Testament starts with this and it ends with this curse. But the New Testament begins with the presentation of the new sovereign king, the new man, the second Adam, like Paul is alluding to here in Romans 5. And this new king, he comes to reverse the terrible curse of the first king. Right, He's one who will not fall, one who brings blessings rather than cursing. And the first king sinned uh, sinned and left a curse, and the second king was sinless and leaves blessing. No other ruler will come after him, no other king will. King when he dies. Sorry, I don't know why I emphasize that. You know, hey, we're getting there. All right. So the first Adam, right? The first king was tempted in the garden and failed. And what's interesting when you read uh, Matthew 4, Jesus goes to the temptation, being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The temptation came to Adam, Jesus went to the temptation. So this second king not only went to the temptation, but he was successful in not giving into it. He didn't fail like the first king. So here's uh, the the new sovereign king's promise, right? It, It starts with the presentation of this new king, Jesus, and it ends with this promise. Look, remember, he's reversing the, the effects of the curse. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The curse on humanity and the earth as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience in Genesis 3, 16 through 19 will be totally finished. God will never have to judge sin again since it won't exist, right? In the new heaven and new earth, in the kingdom of God, there will be no more sin. God won't have to judge it. This will be so unrecognizable to us. Without God's word, we would have no concept of it. Right, we wouldn't even, like, yeah, you you get it, you get it. All right, so when Jesus came into the world, born of a virgin, a new day dawned on history, a new reality dawned on history. And the New Testament, the entire New Testament, actually, all 27 books recognize Jesus as the promised great king. So, We see the term in all 27 books, the term Basalia, 
right? Used 144 times. That word means kingdom. And it's used that many times referring to the reign of Jesus. Then we have Basileus, which means king. And it's used uh, at least 35 times of Jesus directly. And then we have Basileu, which means to reign. And that's used 10 times, roughly 10 times about Jesus specifically. But the entire book of Matthew is focused on Jesus' kingship. It's focused entirely. Virtually every paragraph refers to something of his kingship, and we'll look at a few of those. So now, if you have your Bible, look, go ahead and flip just to Matthew 1 real quick. And I won't read all of the names, not because it'll be embarrassing, but, you know, just because it's a lot. But in Matthew 1, 6, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. This is a royal genealogy. Um, Matt, or Jesus is from a royal line. And then if you look at Matthew 2, verse 2, after Jesus is born, the wise men, they come and visit, saying in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then again, like I mentioned in uh, Matthew 4, right? this is exactly, it's the kingdoms of the world that Satan tempts Jesus with. Now, that's a really interesting thing to tempt somebody with if they are not a king, if they are not this new sovereign man, this promised Messiah, right? In Matthew 4, 8 through 10, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And we know from Matthew 28, 18, that this is exactly what he gains through his death and resurrection. After his death and resurrection, before he ascends back into heaven, he says this, that God the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. So this is absolute uh, sovereign authority, lordship over all. So we'll see that every paragraph almost in Matthew's gospel, speaks to Jesus' kingship. Now, it's, it's here that we don't want to lose touch with our first century Jewish audience because what we say, uh, or the term that we use, king, they would have called Messiah. This was the one that the uh, that first century Jews, really Old Testament and New, anticipated uh, in the Old Testament with the prophets and everything else. They weren't looking for another king. They were looking for a Messiah because a Messiah was more than just a political ruler, right? He would redeem all of Israel. But they would have expected this Messiah to come and take over really the entire world and make Israel the highest of, of nations, right? Really would have uh, overthrown the Roman government who oppressed the Jewish people in the first century, right? So that word Messiah, we, uh, it's translated, right? It's uh, from a Hebrew word meaning anointed one. And in the Greek, it's Christos, which is where we get Christ. So when we're saying Jesus is the Christ, we're saying Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the anticipated one, Right, so the, the prophets, they announce this. I won't read all of Psalm 110, and I won't read Daniel 9, 25 through 26. We'll get turned around very quickly. But what I want you to know is when we say king, the first century Jewish audience would have said Messiah. Okay? So 
He would have been a greater leader and a greater prophet than anybody in his history. So the thrust on the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll see over the next several months, is that the king's message and his work, it's internal. It's not external. You're expecting somebody to come and just destroy all of the other governments around you to set up Israel really high? Well, that's external physical work, isn't it? Somebody say amen. But the king and his work and his message here in the Sermon on the Mount is internal. You won't see any social or political reform here. It's internal. So Jesus' concern is that men and women, uh, he, he deals with who they are because who they are shapes what they do. This is internal work before it is external. And the Sermon on the Mount is the great king's declaration of the gospel truths of the kingdom. What he's, what he's saying is that this is how my people live. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But let's think about this, uh, <laughs> this sermon series, the greatest sermon of all time. It sounds really arrogant and conceited and prideful, but it's not talking about me or anybody who comes up here after me to preach the word of God. We're talking about Jesus' sermon on the mount, right? And so Augustine, who lived from uh, 354 to 430, 430 AD, was probably the first person to call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he said that this sermon was a perfect standard for Christian living. Right? So th- we might call it today Christian Living 101. And many agree that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And I want to make you aware, you will find a Reader's Digest version in Luke 6. You don't need to flip there now. Some people think that this is one account. This is just like a bunch of things or a bunch of other accounts in the gospel. This is the same instance that happens um, or just recorded from two different perspectives. However, I, I will say, at least in my study, this is clearly a sermon on the mount, which is why it's called that. Jesus goes up to the mountain like we'll see later in Luke 6. It's called the Sermon on the Plain because he's on level ground. I think it's two different instances. However, the content is very similar just condensed, all right? So in, in uh, Matthew 4, Jesus' words have been pretty limited, but this is where we see uh, his ministry begin, right? In Matthew four seventeen, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this includes uh, Jesus calling his disciples, Matthew four nineteen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This uh, then he references the, his teachings in general, right? In Matthew 4, 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So here's this great teacher, this great healer, this, this uh, it's astounding, right? You think that he, maybe he's the Messiah that the Old Testament has been anticipating, that you've heard about over and over and over again, and here he is, he's healing people, he's uh, curing every affliction and disease. So his fame spreads throughout the region and large crowds begin to follow him. Now in one powerfully yet comprehensive message, the, the Lord and King sets forth the foundational truths of the good news of the kingdom. So here's what we need to understand over the next several weeks. This is what you want to take out your phone and write down. This is what you want to record or whatever you need to do to remember this. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, does not teach people or men and women how to become citizens of the kingdom. It does not teach you how to become a Christian. 
Rather, it teaches you how citizens of the kingdom live. Right, the distinctive marks and characteristics of those who have been born again by Jesus Christ, this is how they live. So what we understand, right, if, if I drive on the left side of the road, right, drive on the left side of the road and I pay taxes to the United Kingdom, I'm not a citizen of the United Kingdom, am I? No. No, I'm not. So just like this, if you do all of these, that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a citizen of the kingdom. But if you are a citizen of the kingdom, you have the divine power of God, the, Holy, the indwelling Holy Spirit living inside of you to help you carry this out. So our humble submission to Jesus' rule and reign demonstrated by faith and obedience to him evidence our citizenship in the kingdom. So here we are, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. That was the brief intro, and let's go ahead and get started. Before we do, pray with me. Father, we submit to, to King Jesus, to his rule and reign. We, we pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word and that you would illuminate your truth Reveal your truth to us through your spirit, Father, because we cannot understand uh, any of this. None of this will make sense to us unless you reveal it to us in your word through your spirit. So move through your word, and God, we depend on you entirely for this, and we'll realize that more and more as we go, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Matthew 5 in verse 1, if you're there, say amen. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, well, what are you going to say, Jesus? We're stopping at verse 2. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so we see, right, this is, this is why, because we need to understand all of that. And then these, these first two verses, there is so much in them, so much in them. All right, so he, he sees the crowds, and he goes up a mountain, right? So what, what, I, what I saw in that, or at least the way that it read to me, was that he wants to get away from the crowds, right? That's what it looks like. You see the crowds, you're like, nope, want to get up there, get away from them. However, that's probably not it, and we'll discuss that in just two seconds, but as far as we know, this mountain, it was essentially just one of many before Jesus preached there. Right now, it's traditionally called, for centuries at least, the, the uh, Mount of the Beatitudes. Right, so instead of, instead of Jesus wanting to get away from the crowds, Matthew 7, 28 and 29 tell us that the crowds actually heard this. So Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching uh, them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So both the disciples, right, Jesus wanted to address the disciples specifically, but the crowds heard this message. And the reason that I'm spending some time uh, talking about this, because there are some people who say that the Sermon on the Mount is a discipleship discourse. And I agree, right? This is addressed to the disciples, but the crowds hear it, which make it evangelistic. And we'll talk about that some more. 
But what we realize is that the crowds were probably eavesdropping, right? They, they heard it for sure, but it wasn't addressed to them. But it, it's important for us, important for us to consider this distinction, right? Because in uh, Matthew 5 verse 1 is the first time we see the word disciples in Matthew's gospel. And immediately we're introduced to a distinction that Matthew's making. There are disciples and then there are crowds, So what is a disciple? It most literally means a learner or a pupil. In context, it means a follower of Jesus Christ, synonymous with Christian, which simply means Christ follower. But here we understand that these were the only people at this point who would have understood the blessedness that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes to any real extent. They were the only ones who had the divine assistance through Jesus' coming and their faith in him to carry out the lifestyle that he's describing. And then there's the crowds. The crowds. This distinction makes it clear that they're not disciples, that they're not Christians, right? There are disciples and then there are the crowds. Both of them are hearing Jesus' message. However, many of them were perhaps more interested in the excitement, in all of the drama, right? There's Frank. You know, Frank, he had that accident, so he's got that thing, you know? <laughs> There's no way he's healing him. I bet you five bucks he doesn't. Yeah, we can leave. I don't need to hear all of the other stuff. Bet you he doesn't heal him. Let's watch it and we'll get out of here. Or maybe they're like, yeah, this guy sounds like the Messiah, kind of looks like the Messiah, but I'm not really sure. Either way, what I need you to understand is these people are not born-again believers. They are hearing this message, and this message, the Sermon on the Mount, is showing or revealing to them the righteous standards that they could not obey without faith in Jesus Christ. So we understand that this happens today. There are people in churches everywhere around the world who hear Jesus' teachings, who try to adopt some of them, who ultimately fail because they, have not had, they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. They're not born again. And then what they prove, in effect, is that unless you have faith in him, unless you have been born again, unless you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you cannot meaningfully carry these out. Right, because the standards here are much too high, much too demanding to be met by human power alone. The Sermon on the Mount goes much deeper than the 613 laws of Moses. It doesn't demand that men and women just do right, but it demands that men and women be right. And you can't do that by yourself. And, and I want to... I want to share with you Mickey Cohen. Does anybody know Mickey Cohen? Ever heard of Mickey Cohen? No one? Wow, great. Notorious criminal in the 50s, right? Probably one of the most public criminals uh, in his day. And what uh, Mickey Cohen did, or what's interesting about his story, is one day he was convinced to go to an evangelistic meeting, right? And so the gospel was preached. He, he expressed some interest in Christianity. Some, some influential Christian leaders began visiting Mickey Cohen, this notorious criminal and gangster. So 
they, they're going uh, to his house and, and everything else. They're trying to get to know him. They're trying to share the gospel with him and convince him to become a Christian because what better influence for the Lord would somebody have than Mickey Cohen, this notorious criminal and gangster, right? So here's what happens, right? Late one night after repeatedly, uh, or repeatedly being encouraged to open the door of his heart, you know, Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. If you hear the Lord knocking at your heart door, just go ahead and open it and say this prayer. Cohen prayed. His associates, they were all excited. Cohen became a Christian. Look how great he's going to influence people for the Lord. Look at the great influence that he's going to have um, for the kingdom. However, after some time went by, Cohen's life didn't change. Didn't change. He was still committing crime. He was still doing some very horrific things that we're not going to spend any time talking about, but his uh, friends became quickly discouraged, his believing friends anyways. So finally, like good friends, they confronted Mickey Cohen. And they're like, look, if you're going to be, like you can't say that you're a Christian and your life looked like this. You got to stop doing the things that you're doing. That's not consistent with what the Lord tells us that Christians do. And Mickey Cohen objected, right? And this is his logic. Quote, there are Christian football players, Christian cowboys, Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? But Mickey Cohen's story, it dramatically underscores what's happening to so many people around the world. There are so many people who have accepted Christ, yet there is no change. There's no repentance. There's no evidence that they have submitted to the, the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And if we were just going to summarize this, one can't behave like Christ until they become like Christ. Unless they partake in his nature, like it says in 1 Peter, uh, I think it's 2 Peter 2, 1 through 4. Let's see. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers. You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of our sinful desires. So, the disciples are there, it's addressed to them. The crowds are hearing this. The disciples can keep the standards. It, it, it applies to them. The crowds, this is evangelistic. It's showing them their need for Jesus. The proper response to the Sermon on the Mount leads to Christ, always. Not just better actions, not just better thoughts. Leads to Christ. But notice his posture, right? In... Um, Matthew 5, 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, he sat down. I'm, I'm waiting for my chair. Uh, no, okay, not funny, cool. He sat down, right? And, and we kind of miss this today. We kind of miss this today. When, uh, in the first century, rabbis, they sat down when they taught. And when they sat down, it was considered authoritative and official, 
right? It was serious when they sat down. When they were walking or when they were standing up, it was informal, unofficial. So what we understand when Jesus sits down is that his message is authoritative and official. And we understand this, right? This is mimicked in our society today. When uh, professors, when we talk about them holding a chair, we speak from the prominent position that they teach from. Or when the Pope, when the Pope teaches uh, or gives an official address, he's uh, considered to speak ex cathedra, ex cathedra, which literally means speaking from his chair. Right? So we see this mimicked in our society, this, this seated position and holding a chair, speaking it being official and authoritative. But when Jesus sat down, he's speaking uh, from his, his uh, divine chair with absolute sovereign authority as the sovereign king of this kingdom. Jesus sits down. This is authoritative and official coming from the king of this kingdom. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Has anybody typed really long essays, and you just include wordiness? Yeah, praise God. There are some honest people in the house. All right. This isn't just wordiness, right? It sounds kind of redundant. It sounds like one of those things your professor would be like, okay, whatever, 1,000 words, 3,000 words, whatever, I get it. This isn't the case. And when he opened his mouth and taught them, saying this phrase was a common expression that conveyed intimacy, Intimacy. So not only was it authoritative, but it was intimate. Right? He, he's communicating everything here in Matthew 5 through 7 in the most official way, but it's delivered in the most intimate and, and concerned way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like he's telling you that, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is who the people of God are. And, and I, I need you to understand this. I need you. Like he's getting down in people's face, and he, and he wants them to understand this is the reality. So it's not just like a king just rolling in on his horse and he just, you know, makes a proclamation. Like he's getting down and talking authoritatively yet intimately to his disciples so that they can understand. And again, this isn't just for the disciples. Only the disciples can carry this out and live this way. But it's for the crowds to realize their great need for the Savior. So what we see is that Jesus taking the traditional posture of a rabbi, seating down, or seated, 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 and then opening his mouth, he's not just the second Adam. He's not just the, a greater king, but he's a new and greater Moses. He's the, the great teacher, the great lawgiver that Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20 expects. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20 the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. 
Jesus is not just the, the second Adam, but he's the second Moses. He's the, the, the greater Moses. He's the new, the new and greater uh, prophet and lawgiver. And we see that in Matthew 5 through 7. So he moves into the Beatitudes, and again, I really wanted to jump in today. I wanted to get through uh, Matthew 5, 3 today, but we're not going to do that. But what I want us to understand is that the Beatitudes, right, these eight pronouncements of blessings um, are like the preamble or the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is just the introduction, these eight, these eight pronouncements, right? And then he really gets into the meat and potatoes a little bit later. But these eight declarations, what they probably draw on is Matthew, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy are you, O Israel. Right, those are Moses' words. But here, we see that that word uh, blessed or blessed. Who says blessed? Like blessed are the meek. Yeah, see, we have a few honest people. I'll say it the entire time. It'll drive the other people who don't say it that way nuts, but we'll be all right. But makarios is that word in the Greek, and it means happy, fortunate, or blissful. But who immediately, just by show of hands, recognizes how short, or how short that that word or that definition falls? Happy, fortunate, blissful. Does anybody else just recognize? Right, because the fullest meaning of that term, blessed or blessed, has to do with the eternal or internal contentedness or a state of joy that cannot be affected by circumstances. Right? This is what Paul describes or he conveys in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Well, how is that? I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and uh, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This, this blessedness, this internal state of joy that is not affected by external circumstances, is, it only comes through a relationship with the Lord. So if you're sitting there on the mountain and you're one of the disciples, you know this and you're about to experience it very soon. And if you're in the crowd... You're hearing of this and you're like, I don't have this. Man, I, like, do you see my life? Like, I'm up and down all the time. But when you understand, when you have been redeemed by the Lord, when you have believed in his death and resurrection and have been born again, there's a joy that the world can't take. So we quickly realize that, that the king's message doesn't fit the world's standards, right? Because his kingdom is not of this world, but it's of heaven, and right? The world says, happy are the rich, happy are the noble, the successful, the macho, the glamorous, the popular, the famous, and the aggressive. The world's philosophy suggests that things satisfy, right? Acquiring things brings happiness, achieving things brings meaning, doing things brings satisf uh, satisfaction, but the Sermon on the Mount proves to us that external things cannot satisfy internal needs. Amen, somebody. Amen. Amen. Yeah, y'all look skeptical. You're like, man, I'm about to go get this new TV so I could watch this new thing and, you know, 
external things cannot satisfy internal needs. We learn that through the Sermon on the Mount. So the disciples would have understood. The crowds would have been like, man, how do I get that? And so over the next several months, uh, we'll learn what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And we need to understand, I have to avoid preaching you know, all of this with our introduction, but, but we need to understand how it fits into Matthew's gospel. Matthew reveals Jesus as the Messiah King who is revealed, then who is rejected, and then who will return. Right, so where are we on this, in this meta-narrative? The king is revealed. The king was rejected. We're waiting for the king's return. And when he does, he will usher in his kingdom in full. And here's the problem, that there are, there are people every day who are opening their heart's door and praying a prayer, saying, repeating empty words. Some people praise God. It, it, that they are praying, it, and they mean it. They believe by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. However, what I'm saying is there are a lot of Mickey Cohens in the world. They may not be criminals, but there are people who, who say that they're Christians, that they're citizens of the kingdom, yet reject everything that the Lord teaches. Or they pick and choose, and, and it's only what they like. Right, and here's what happens. When we establish our little kingdoms on earth, we undermine Jesus' kingdom. Here's, when he returns, he's, he's gonna be the Messiah that destroys every other kingdom in his way. So if you have set up a little kingdom, if you have been following Jesus in the crowd, I am begging you to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin. If you have been following Jesus in the crowd, trying to do these little things here and there, trying to adopt, well, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not gonna get angry, I'm not gonna lust, I'm not gonna do this. This is not teaching men and women how to become citizens of the kingdom, but how citizens of the kingdom live because they have been born again. And you can't do it through your own power and your own strength. So call on Jesus today and be saved. That's where we're going for the next several months. Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. If you're underwhelmed by my preaching, that's good news because Jesus is way better and that's what we'll be in for the next several months. So let's, uh, let's just bow together and pray. King Jesus, we, we realize that, that we can't follow you, that we can't model your, uh, your kingdom, that we can't reflect it to the nations, that we can't be ambassadors of this kingdom without your Assistance without your power, not only uh, re, uh, transforming our nature, but renewing our mind, renewing our thoughts and our heart. God. So I pray that if there's anybody who's been following you from a distance, who's just been eavesdropping on your word, who's been trying to pick and choose what they want to adopt in their kingdom, I pray that they would that they would submit to your rule and reign today, that they would believe in your death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sin that they would trust 
in the king who was revealed, the king who was rejected, and the king who will return. And for the believer, I pray that that they would become more reliant on your power to change and transform their life, to, to do what you have called them to do and live how you've called them to live. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.